So we are continuing our, our summer in the Psalms, and we're in Psalm 121. So if you're not there, you can turn there to Psalm 121. I just finished reading uh, The Warmth of Other Suns. It's been sitting on my nightstand for about a month, and it was a great read. It is uh, a book by Isabel Wilkerson, and she, she documents the great migration of African Americans from the South to the North and West, and she documents, uh, especially through the stories of three people as they made this dangerous journey from the South to freedom in the, uh, in the, in the free parts of the United States of America. And in these stories, she documents how it was actually perilous for them to leave. Some of them were sharecroppers, and the farmers that uh, they were going to leave from uh, could have had them arrested on trumped-up charges uh, of, of debts that they didn't owe. Some of them could have been in danger just by looking crossly at a, a white person, whether it was true or not, and could have suffered lynching. But they were on a dangerous journey, and they were headed to uh, a land that they believed was the promised land, a land of freedom, a land of, uh, uh, of plenty, a land where they could make it for themselves. And many of them found the north to be just as hazardous of the, as the south in terms of racism. Many of them found the north to actually be that promised land that they, they wanted, that they, if they work hard enough, they could have what they want, a, a house and and cars, and, and freedom. And many of them, as they came to the end of their life, as Miss Wilkerson documents, the land of promise for none of them was as great as they thought it would be. You know, Christians, if you're here as a Christian, Christians, too, are on a dangerous journey. There are enemies before us, the world, the flesh, the devil, John tells us. They're all our enemies, and we too are on our way to a promised land. But unlike those of the great migration, we have a promise from God that we will get where we're going. And when we get there, it will be better than we could have ever imagined. There will be no disappointment because God has the power and desire to see us through this journey, and he will do it. He promised to do it. He will see us through this dangerous, perilous journey all the way to the end. I wonder, how would you assure someone who is struggling in this life's journey? What would be your words of assurance to them? Would you tell them they can do it? Just work harder? I got your back. I can, I can help you with this. Well, God takes another tact. God longs to assure his people by talking about himself. He, he, in this passage, doesn't say, you got this, you can do it. He talks about himself, his attributes, and his actions on the behalf of his people. So Psalm 121 is a, you'll notice the, the, the heading of it, which is given by the author. It's a song of ascents. That means it's a, it's a song of, of going up. 
and there are lots of theories about what that actually means. But I think the, ones that make, the one that makes the most sense is that this was a song for the children of Israel who are making their way back to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three feasts that God had commanded them to celebrate. You can read about it in Exodus 23, uh, 14 through 17. And uh, I had a bookmark here, and now it's lost. Here it is. Okay. He, he says, uh, Moses writes, Three times in the year you shall keep a feast unto me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor. And what you sow in the field you shall keep. The feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, three times in the year shall all males appear before the Lord God. And they were commanded to come up to Jerusalem and to worship God at these three feasts. And, and these songs are common, were commonly, we believe, sung as they went up to Jerusalem from wherever they were. And it's likely that the exiles on their way back home to Jerusalem, were, had these psalms, these songs, and they were singing them in praises to God and as an assurance that they would be kept on their way. So the movement of, the, of these psalms points the reader to Jerusalem, to Zion, to the house of the Lord where God dwells, where his presence is. You can see that in, in Psalm 128.5 on, on, on the journey to this city of peace. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And God is bringing them back to the place where his presence dwells. And he's inviting them to come along this dangerous journey. He will keep them and they will make it. The king is going to assure them that they will come in to do what they were created to do. And that is to worship God. God assures his people by giving him them more knowledge of himself so that they'll labor to trust him. So here, here it is. The Lord guards his people on their journey home. Not just guides them. He guards them on their journey home. We're going to look at this through two, two headings. One, the Lord helps man in his distress, verses 1 and 2. The Lord helps man in his distress, And number two, the Lord guards his people as they journey home, verses 3 through 8. The Lord helps man in his distress, verses 1 and 2. He begins, as Bonnie read, I lift my eyes to the hills. He begins lifting his eyes to the hills. And we know, we know that he, there is some sort of distress because he's asking, where does his help come from? The hills in uh, that part of the world were, were dangerous, there were, there were actually places where, where gangs and robbers and thieves would, would take shelter. And, and to pass through there would be to take your life in your own hands. And he looks to the hills, the places of danger. You know, the hills were also places where false gods were. The, the, the pagans would worship gods on the hills. These were places of false hope. They were places of danger. They were places of false hope in other gods. But... You notice the psalmist looks beyond the hills. He looks beyond created nature 
He looks beyond the created things. He looks beyond the universe itself. And he says, where does my help come from? And his answer is, his help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This word help, it's foundational truth for, for who we are as people, who we are as men and women. We're weak. We can't save ourselves. And this is what the psalmist is pointing at, that he needs help. His help comes from the Lord, but he himself is weak. The Lord helps man in his distress. And we have to ask, why is man in distress? He's, he's, he's in distress because of the outside and because of what's going on the inside. The man, man, we, we need a biblical understanding of man. This, these are the foundational truths that, that help us to see who our help comes from and, and what he will do. But a biblical understanding of man is that he is created and therefore dependent on the creator. Now, I don't know what your view of the origin of the world and life is, but the Bible says, the Christian worldview says that God created everything by the word of his mouth. Genesis 1.27 tells us this very thing. It says, in, within the six days of creation, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man is a creature and is completely dependent on his creator for everything. That, that's a biblical understanding. One of the biblical pieces of biblical understanding of who man is. But man is not just created and dependent. The Bible goes on to tell us in the next two chapters that man is sinful. Why does he need help? Because he needs salvation. God is perfect and holy in all of his ways. And in Genesis 2, he, he creates a garden and he puts Adam and Eve into the garden of Eden perfect dwelling place of, of God and man, and, and he gives them everything they need, and he gives them one prohibition. He says, don't eat of this tree. In Genesis 3, you remember the story. You remember that Adam and Eve disobeyed. They, they listened to the serpent, and they did not believe God had good plan for them. They believed he was withholding something good from them. Have you ever been there? That, that is really the foundation. That is, that is what sin is, believing that God is withholding something from you, and you have to go take it yourself. In Genesis 3, they take it, the fruit, and they eat, and they plunge the world and their progeny into sin and the effects of sin. And ever since then, they've been east of Eden trying to find their way back. And anyone who does find their way back to Eden, who finds salvation, will have to find it in the serpent crusher, Genesis 3 tells us, that there would be one born of a woman that would come and he would crush the head of that evil serpent. And if you were going to find your way back to Eden, back to where you were supposed to be, you would have to place all of your hope in the serpent crusher. But man is created. Completely dependent. Man is sinful and man is helpless. On this journey back to Eden, 
you must look and believe in the Lord who is the maker of heaven and earth in order to get back to where you're supposed to be. Man, it's completely helpless. The Bible is full of stories of man trying and failing, trying and failing, trying and failing. Maybe it's this law that God gave. Maybe that will get us back. Maybe it's this king God gave. Saul, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, all failures. None of them are getting us back. And we're helpless. And finally, you come to the end of the, towards the end of the Old Testament, and God's people are taken away into exile, and they want to know, where does their help come from? Are you going to fulfill your promises? We're helpless. It's not a pretty picture. Even God's chosen ones are weak and sinful and needy and in need of help. How will we get to where we're going? The psalmist answers that question. His help comes from the Lord, the one who created everything. So we not only get a biblical understanding of, of man, that he's, he's, he's helpless, he's needy, he's dependent. We also get a biblical understanding of the Lord. The rest of the passage, almost this whole passage, tells us who the Lord is and why we can be assured of his, his kind providence in our life in getting us through this journey. The biblical understanding of God starts with the covenant name of the Lord. You notice again, we even noticed it last week, and we noticed it time and time again in the Old Testament, that the covenant name of the Lord is used in these psalms. And, you, and you'll notice it in verse 2, it's all caps. When it's all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. It, it means covenant God means promise-keeping God, the promise-making and promise-keeping God. It's the name he gives when he's in a relationship with somebody. Tell them I'm Yahweh. Their promises are bound up in his name. You can even see it in the New Testament in Jesus' own name. Jesus' name is, is really a Latinized form of Joshua. Joshua. Joshua, me, I mean, you, you can see it in there. You can see the Hebrew in there. It, Joshua is actually Yeshua. Yahweh saves. Jesus. What will you name the one who is coming? Joseph. You will, you will call his name Jesus. Why should I call his name Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. This is the covenant God who all of his promises in Christ are yes and amen. But he's not only the covenant God, he's not only the covenant Lord, he's the creator God, the maker of heaven and earth. Did you notice that in verse 2? You know, we just pass by these things sometime, sometimes. But God is the maker of heaven and earth. This is a, a literary device called a merism. Yeah, sorry, it's nerd alert time, but this is, this is something they use in poetry. And it's listing the opposite parts to signify the whole or the totality of a thing. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Means he's the maker of what? 
I heard it muffled. Everything, right? He, there's nothing he hasn't made. And do you know how he made it? By the word of his power. He made it out of nothing. He spoke and it came into existence. Galaxies upon galaxies that you have never explored. He spoke and they came into existence. Tiny cells within your body. Atoms. There is nothing that he has not made. By the word of his power. He has limitless power. Spurgeon said it like this. Heaven and earth are the disposal, are at the disposal of him who made them. And he would no sooner let heaven, he would sooner let heaven and earth be destroyed than one of his own. The Lord is creator God. But he's not just creator God. When you think of creator God making everything out of nothing by the word of his power, sovereign over all, you think transcendent, he's far above me. I'm not. He's going to kill me, but he's not that. Notice in verse 2, he is not only the creator of heaven and earth, but he's first, he's my help. The Lord is helper. He is imminent. He is near to you, closer to you than your own shadow. The creator of heaven and earth comes as your help. He's transcendent, but he's near. What does his nearness do for us? He is, the, he is the God who helps his people. But he's also the God, secondly, he is the Lord who guards his people as they journey home. The Lord guards his people as they make their journey home. Now, I, am, I, I know that I'm using this journey of the Israelites to worship in Jerusalem, I'm saying I think that points to something greater. And that something greater is our journey home to be with God and to worship him forever and ever. I think it's pointing towards that. And if that is true, he will keep you on your journey here. The Lord guards. So, you notice, as, as, as Bonnie read, did you notice the word being repeated over and over again? You will keep. You will keep. He's the keeper. He's the keeper. He will keep. He will keep. He will keep. That word, it just means what you think it means. He's going to guard you. He's going to protect you. He is, he's, you know, he's the keeper, the goalkeeper. He, you know, hopefully he, he secures the goal and no one will kick a soccer ball in there. God is guarding you. He's keeping you. He's protecting you. And he, he's not going to let you fail if you have trust in him. So verses 3 and 4, who, this guardian of his people uh, is seen as the one who is sleepless. The guardian of his people is the guardian who is sleepless in verses 3 and 4. He, he's, not, he's not staying awake. He's not an insomniac. Because he's worried about anything. This Lord who guards his people is sleepless because he doesn't need anything. He's sleepless because he's self-existent. He exists apart from any need. 
He doesn't need air. He doesn't need sleep. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need anything. A.W. Tozer said, need is a creature word. It is absurd to use it of the self-sufficient one. You know, you college students, you've pulled all-nighters before? Yeah? Maybe more than one in a row? How do you feel after that? Pretty bad, right? We'll try doing that for a week. In two weeks. A month. What would happen? You'd end up in the hospital. We are made to need rest and Sabbath. We cannot go on indefinitely, working and working and working ourselves to death. Yes, we were made for work, and work is good, but there was a pattern that God gave us, and we were made to need work and then rest. Maybe God has put you in a forced rest right now. You know, he's done that in COVID. For in, in some ways, we're in a forced rest, and we, some of us really don't like it. But God doesn't need anything. And notice the effect this has on his people. He will not let your foot be moved. Because he doesn't sleep, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel, that's God's people, will neither slumber nor sleep. And therefore, your foot will not be moved. It's as if God has a plan for the footsteps you take. He has a plan for your life that is is ordered. And you feel like you're slipping off into the slough of despond. You're welcome, Pilgrim's Progress readers. You feel like you're going off one way or the other. You feel like you're out of control. But God has your steps planned. And he will not let your foot be moved. Notice the poet. He changes pronouns. He will not let your foot be moved. He's talking to the congregation. He's now talking to the congregation he's traveling with and tells them because God is self-existent and self-sufficient. He needs nothing. Therefore, your foot will not slip. If God is guarding you, you cannot be moved. What does that mean? The hills around Palestine were dangerous places places where your foot could slip, and if it did, it could cause injury or death. But here we have a God who guides our steps. Spurgeon, again, calls him the believer's bodyguard. He's making sure that your steps will lead to where he plans you to go. He will keep you. There's no plan B for you, friend, brother, and sister. There's God is completely sovereign. He will guide you where you need to go. He will guard you. He will protect you. He will keep us, church. You notice he's talking to the congregation. He is going to keep his church. He will not let us be moved. Even if this church ends, and one day it probably will, even If this particular assembly disperses and goes to other places, God's church will continue on and so will you. The gods of the nations, they all all needed sleep. It would go better for those people if the gods of the nations got sleep. You know, kind of like us parents, it goes better for our children when we get sleep. 
But Yahweh is not that way. He's not domesticated. While you sleep, he keeps watch over you. He keeps the night watches. He will not let your foot be moved. You who have trouble sleeping. Those of us who, whose anxiety keeps us awake at night. The guardian has you. Whether you sleep or not. Remind yourself when you cannot sleep that my sleeplessness will not change his care for me. He will care for you whether you sleep or you can't sleep. He is sleepless. He's self-sufficient. Could you imagine if you were self-sufficient, what you would do with that kind of power? You know, with sinners, you've heard the saying, power corrupts. But absolute power corrupts absolutely. But not with God. The guardian is not only sleepless, but he is good. Do you see that in verses 5 and 6? The guardian is good. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. He's your safety and strength. As their keeper, the, the poet says he is their shade. The shade is a place of protection, a shelter. Psalm 91 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, on the Oregon coast, we're, we are more often looking for shelter from the wind than from the sun. But we know the protection that shades provides from a hot summer day. When it's right overhead and it's 90 degrees, what are you looking for? You're looking for a shade tree. God says, I'm that shade tree. Even more so in the climate like Palestine where the heat was more intense. The shade was lessened. God says, I'm your shade. I'm your protection. I'm your shelter. The, po the poetry sort of personifies the sun and the moon. Did you notice as they, they the created elements look like they're doing battle with the traveler, as if they are against him making to the place of worship. But God says nothing, not the things seen in the full light of the sun or the things unseen under the moon, nothing in the darkness or the light will be able to finally strike them down. It is a good time to say that God is not here promising a cushy life. He's not saying you'll never have pain or sorrow. He, he's, he's not saying any of that. He's saying he will preserve your life on your travels. He will not let you finally be stricken down. You will not finally be pushed off. A traveler's anxieties. You know, they had them whether they were known or imagined. And you have those too, don't you? The threats you worry about that are coming. The anxiety that builds up in you. They're not, it's not there yet. You don't even know if it's going to happen, but you're just, you're just wondering when it's going to happen. All of those anxieties were meant to be cast on him, the guardian, who is good. His goodness is not meant to be merely known as a principle I said something like this last week, but it's not meant to be known in the abstract, that in a systematic theological way that, okay, God is good. I know that. 
It's meant to be experienced as as if his goodness was meant for you. If you have trusted Christ for his promises, that his promises are for you, then the Lord is your helper. He is the maker. He's sleepless and he's good. Notice his goodness, though. It It has attributes of its own. The guardian's care and his goodness is is actually comprehensive in verses 7 and 8. Did you notice that? The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you. He will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. In these verses, the, the triune repetition of the phrase will keep. Again, the Prince of Preachers says it like this. Jehovah shall keep as if the sacred trinity thus sealed the word to make it sure. The Lord is our keeper. Ought not all our fears to be slain by such a threefold flight of arrows? What anxiety can survive this triple promise? For those who have had evil done to them, remember. Jesus experienced the greatest evil on the cross. Those who trust Christ alone for forgiveness of sins, who have repented and believed in him, for those people, they will be protected from all evil. And it's a comprehensive evil, friend. No evil, not even our own evil, will be able to separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ in him. He will keep us. He will keep us from all evil that means to damn us to hell. He will not let it happen. In the cross, he's, he's made that promise sure. In the resurrection, he, he's made that promise sure. In his ascension, as he's sitting seated on the throne, we behold him making that promise sure. It's comprehensive. He will keep you from all evil. But his this promise is not just comprehensive, it's, it's also meticulous. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. There's no part of your life that he's not reigning providentially over. Nothing. Not the COVID. Not the, not the job market. Not the presidential election. Not the broken heart you feel for whatever it is you feel. God is meticulously reigning over every part of your life. I wonder if you believe that. I wonder if you think it's good. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 21, 18. He said, not one hair of your head will perish. Not one hair of your head will perish. Do you know what that was in the context of? That was in the context of their family members turning them over to government authorities to be tried for their faith. That's what Jesus is saying. Your mother and your father, your brothers and sisters, they're going to hand you over to the governing authorities, and those governing authorities, they may end up killing you, but not one hair of your head will perish. How is that possible? Because God is not finally talking about this life alone. He has preserved your soul through the cross. 
And in preserving your soul, your body is preserved too. Though it goes into the grave and is burned, it will be resurrected again and joined to your soul finally. And God will have the last laugh. He will say, not one of the hairs of your head has perished. By your endurance, you will gain your lives, Jesus says to them. In another place, he exhorts us not to worry because of the fact that he has numbered the very hairs of our head. In John 10, 28, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. How meticulous is God's providential care in your life? Psalm 139, you formed, this is before you were born. This is before I was born. You formed me, my inward parts. You knitted them together in my mother's womb. He knows everyone's going out and coming in. Before you were born, before, before you were even thought of, he knew everything about you. And that's scary to those of us who don't know, some of us who don't know him as father. But to those of us who do know him as father, we know that it is good. That it is scary, but it is good. Why is it good? Because there is a promise for us, brothers and sisters, if you should be assured of that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So that though he knows every deepest, darkest secret of your soul, and he could punish you and damn you to hell forever, he looks at Jesus, the risen Christ, and he says, blessed. He knows you. He who knows us best loves us most. And that's what you want, isn't it? You want to be known for who you are, and you want to be loved. And in Jesus, you can be. He knows everything about you. He knows how COVID is affecting your job, your schooling. He knows, he knows about the rent. He knows about homeschooling. He knows, and he is meticulously guarding you through it all. And the last thing I, I believe the psalmist is telling us is that his care is not only meticulous, it's only comprehensive and meticulous, but it is eternal because he is eternal. He, he, will, he will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. Because he is eternal, his care is also eternal. He will do all this guarding for you until the end, until the end of your life. When you drop dead and you become worm food and beyond that, forevermore, there's no time that he won't be guarding you, friend. He will do all this guarding until the end of time and then beyond that. His care is based on who he is. He's eternal God. And this eternal God will protect his own. He, he will do that be, because of what he's done on the cross in Jesus Christ. He, he who guards us 
let his guard down for his son. And he let all of the arrows of the enemy fly at him. He let death itself and the wrath of God pour out on Jesus Christ. And he died for you and for me. He was placed in a tomb for three days. And so that he could keep his promise of guarding his people, those who put their trust in him, he rose again from the dead, showing that his sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he reigns forevermore. This is the one that is guarding you on your journey. This is the one who will bring you safely home to the promised land. You know, one of those travelers in the great migration with the warmth of other sons, name was Robert Pershing Foster. And uh, Robert made it to L.A. Had training as a doctor, was trained through the Army. And as he came uh, to L.A., he, he, he did experience racism all, all across. He experienced not being able to stay in hotels because he was African-American. And he came, he, but he finally made it to L.A. And through hard work and, and, and tireless work, he made his own practice. He became a very wealthy man, well-known. Ray Charles wrote a song about him. He came to the end of his days, alone. His wife had died in, his, in her 50s. His daughters had moved away. And he said, essentially, this, is, this was good, but it's not everything I hoped for. This is not the promised land I, I finally wanted to come to. Friend, on your journey, God is going to guard you all the way home. And, and when you get there, you're not going to be disappointed. You will not come to the end of your days and say, it's not everything I wanted. Jesus is going to be there, and it's going to be everything you wanted. Like at the end of Chronicles of Narnia, the unicorn will say, this is home. This is the place I've finally longed for, and I'm finally home. God will do it. Have confidence in him. Let's pray. Father.